<clears throat> we're, we're going through this series. We've only got a few more weeks left here in it. And um, <clears throat> we're looking at something that makes up an enormous amount of the, of the background of the text that we read in the Bible, meaning it's part of sort of just the water they're swimming in, and that's how they live their lives. It's, it's culture, it's these festivals. Um, and I think it's just always good to reiterate, why does we study these things? And that's one unique thing about Wednesday Night Community, is one of our goals is we, we want to have a better understanding of the ancient world <laughs> that this ancient book represents, because it's super different than ours. It's so removed from ours. And so the, the better that we can understand just like the backdrop, you'll be able to connect dots better. I, I thought this week of, it, it might be something like this, maybe some of you will know, what, what, um, what celebration or festival am I talking about if I say, uh, you know, Chanel almost broke her tooth when she found the baby in her piece of cake? <clears throat> How many of you have no clue what I'm talking about? Anyone here live in New Orleans? <clears throat> King's cake, Mardi Gras. I remember uh, my wife and I moved down to New Orleans our first year of marriage. And had, I, I, had, I think I had heard of Mardi Gras, but I didn't know anything about it. And I just thought, like, I have gone into an insane place. Like, it's so bizarre. And, you know, babies, little babies and cake. And I was just like, wait, this is disgusting. What are you talking about? It was so confusing to me, right? Or, or if I said, you, you probably would know this, if I said, um, you know, what celebration am I talking about? Uncle Bob and Jerry almost got into a fight uh, over who could make a wish and breaking the bone. I'm probably talking about Thanksgiving. There's a wishbone. There's all this background that you, you automatically fill in, don't you? Like when I talk about the king's cake or the wishbone, you immediately fill in all of this stuff because you've been through a hundred of these. There are so many moments, again, especially as New Testament readers, where we see Jesus and there's just a, a drop made like um, he was, you know, he was going up for Passover. Well, that just ushers in all of this content, all of this stuff. And hopefully you're seeing that in this series is that it, it's making me a more careful reader of scripture. And because of that, I'm, I'm I, again, I'm connecting those dots. I'm seeing things that, that, that I just, I wouldn't see otherwise. So that's kind of, I just wanted to reinforce, like, that's why we're doing this. That's why we're spending time. And that's why we're going back into the Old Testament. We're reading these texts. And tonight is one of these nights where um, it's going to be a lot of Old Testament texts in the book of Exodus, mostly. And we're going to be reading through because it's giving us grounding for, again, these times when we encounter Jesus and others in the New <clears throat> Testament. So as I mentioned, tonight, um, we're going to be stepping into Pesach, or Passover. If you still have the little, um, little calendar thing on the back here, uh, this, this becomes their new year. As you can see, it's kind of in about, like March is when it starts. Um, and what we'll find is uh, Israel is actually working on having multiple calendars at once. That's just reality. They had sort of an agricultural calendar. And then when God gives them this calendar, it's kind of more of a religious calendar. And it's, as we said earlier, it's kind of mapped on to the uh, agricultural calendar, but there are differences. And so um, the, the Qumran community who had the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had their own calendar. The Pharisees had a calendar that they used different names. And so these groups are working with different calendars. There's not one that is sort of the biblical calendar. They're, they're, they're working with different ones. As I've done every um, week, let me start by reading a dictionary entry that just gives a definition. 
of Passover. The uh, Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary reads, <clears throat> Passover is the name of the sacrifice that is slaughtered on the 14th day of Nisan. So it's sacrificed at the end of the 14th day, then it's eaten on the 15th, because remember, day starts at sundown, right? Um, <clears throat> 14th day of Nisan, eaten toward evening, at the end of the day, or soon after sunset, marking the beginning of the 15th day of Nisan. Scripture presents the Passover as the key element of a rite commemorating the exodus from Egypt and the bounty of divine redemption. Unleavened bread is the name of an originally distinct, they get like combined, but originally they were different, seven-day festival, which began on sunset of the 15th. So basically when Passover is over, this Feast of Unleavened Bread starts, and then over time, they just, you just start celebrating them as one holiday kind of thing. Um, scripture combines the Passover sacrifice with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the post-biblical times, uh, the two festivals were fully integrated into a single holiday. So that kind of generally gives you an idea as to kind of what this is and what's going on. So <clears throat> what I want to do and if you, I'll have the scripture up on the screen. You can follow along, or if you have your own, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 11 is where we'll start. Specifically, Passover, it's tied to the 10th and final plague that God brought on Egypt, which was sort of the last straw that broke the camel's back before Pharaoh was willing to let the Hebrews go and go out into the desert to this place to worship Yahweh. And so, um, good, it's up there. Is that large enough? Or is it, it's okay? Even the back? Good. So let's do this. Let's read through this. Um, so it says, um, the Lord said to Moses, so the nine plagues have happened. Okay, if you're kind of familiar with the story, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. God, it's also said that God hardened his heart at different points, and Pharaoh was resistant uh, to, to this. And so this is, this is the last plague. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt after he will let you go from here. So we see even God knows what it will take before a certain person will, will break. Um, when he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. Let's uh, jump down for the sake of time here, verse 4. <clears throat> so Moses said, thus says Yahweh, the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn, this is God speaking, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. I love the way he puts that. That's kind of funny. Either, uh, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. 
The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my words may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. I'll just read that this next last verse here. Uh, Moses and Aaron did all this, all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. Now, just pause here before we go on. I, I want to talk a little Egyptian theology because that's, again, another background piece, something that's playing a big part here. So the Pharaoh was not just a person. The Pharaoh was considered to be the incarnation of Horus, the god. And Horus's father is Ra, the, the ultimate god. So he is, Pharaoh is spoken of as the son of Ra, okay? He's not a human figure according to their theology. And what's really interesting is there's, in, in Egyptian theology, when, when the gods created, um, they, they conquered chaos, and they put in place something called ma'at, M-A-A-T, ma'at. Ma'at is, 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 is the order to the world. And the gods installed ma'at to, to make everything run smoothly so that the rain falls at the right time of the year, so that the Nile floods at the right time of the year. And everything is, is to work in, is sort of... Um, not in obedience to, because Ma'at isn't a person, it's more of a, it's like, you can almost think of it like the force in Star Wars, you know, kind of thing. It, the force, we're told in the Star Wars movies, it, what do they say, things like it, it, it runs through everything, and it's sort of, it's, it's what holds things together, is kind of the idea. That's Ma'at. Well, Pharaoh's job was to maintain Ma'at. That way, he, he's the incarnation of Horus. He's a, he's a divine being, according to Egyptian theology. So Pharaoh's job, cosmically, at least in this location, is to maintain Ma'at, the right ordering of things. And it's very, very important. And so what's interesting is the way the plagues function when they come along, they go after all of the things that Ma'at holds in, in control. And they also go after the gods, the different gods of Egypt who are responsible for certain things. So, for instance, the very first uh, uh, plague, do you remember what it was? It was the Nile, turning to blood, all the water. The Nile is like the, it's, it's the lifeblood of Egypt. Once a year, this massive flood that they believed the gods would do, this massive flood would come, and it would spill over onto the banks of the Nile. I don't mean feet, I mean like miles. Well, if you live in a sandy place, you can't grow things in the sand. So you require, you need this giant flood because it picks up all this rich soil and dirt and spreads it over miles and then you can plant in that. So, I mean, that and a hundred other things. And so what God is doing is he's saying, um, Pharaoh cannot control Ma'at. And God is saying, I actually have control over the contours of the world, keeping everything in place. And I will show you that by, by basically uh, taking it apart. <laughs> it's essentially, if, like if you think about creation account in Genesis, where each day God is bringing orderly things, this is, this is decreation. He's taking order away, and they have no power to fix it. They have no power to, in fact, Pharaoh's magicians, if you remember early on, they can do a couple of the first uh, kind of plagues, they turn some water to blood, but see, the irony is that they're just adding to the problem. <laughs> they can't reverse it. They're just making things worse. 
And so they don't have the ability, this is, this is what Moses, God through Moses is communicating to all the Egyptians, but also to the Hebrews, is that Yahweh God is stronger than Horus. He is stronger than Ra. He is more powerful than all of these deities that they've been there, you know, Baal and all these different ones that they've been maybe worshiping themselves, at least knowing that their bosses, their captors, these are the ones that control life. And Yahweh's saying, no, <laughs> I control life, even in foreign areas. <clears throat> I'm absolutely in control. So this is this sort of uh, decreation. It's, it's making life uninhabitable. We can't, we can't live here, and it's destroying it, it's reversing it. In all these plagues, God distinguishes. Israel, he doesn't bring them on. In fact, even the sun, which the sun is raw. The sun dies every day when it goes down, and it's resurrected, raw is resurrected every single day as he goes overhead, giving light to the Egyptians. Do you remember the plague of darkness? God makes it dark, but only over the Egyptians. This other land where the Hebrews are living, it's, it's light there. And so the questions in the Egyptians' mind is, has, has Yahweh killed Ra? Like, how, how can this be? Ra always rises. Um, and who's starting to look like the bad guy in all this? Yeah, the controller of Ma'at. He can't control it. So that's the building pressure as we go through the story. <clears throat> and so um, ultimately what this is, this is a fight between Yahweh and the rebellious Elohim, the rebellious gods, created beings who are behind the religion of Egypt. It's a battle of the gods. In fact, if you even look at um, Exodus 12, verse, verse 2, um, let's see here. I'm sorry, 12, 12. Let me jump to that here real fast. So look what he says here, <clears throat> jumping ahead, he said, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and then he says, and on all the Elohim, the gods of Egypt, I execute my judgment. He's judging these gods and bringing condemnation on them. So let's, let's go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and we'll kind of read through this a little bit more. And, and one thing you have to realize too, the, this, this death of the firstborn, the reason what, yes, it was, it was universal in the sense of anyone who's, who, who's not, will find out kind of the protection clause, but this is specifically geared at Pharaoh. <clears throat> what was so important is how the succession of leadership went down. So when Pharaoh's firstborn son, he's going to become the embodiment of Horus, the god. And so the way that succession happened, even when Pharaoh was getting close to death, they had to do all of these steps in order to maintain Ma'at, in order for Horus to become embodied in this new son. So by going after this, this son, Yahweh is disrupting the progression of leadership and of Ma'at. Ma'at will fall apart, is, is the fear and the idea. So that's, again, another piece of what's going on there. So the Passover, chapter 12. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. That's the month of Abib. Later, when they're in, ex, when they're in Babylon, they take on um, new words for it. They call it Nisan now, but it's, it's the same month. Um, 
tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man will take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household, and then he gives some clauses. And if the household's too small for a lamb, uh, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, uh, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, one year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So even though we tend to think of it as always the sheep, it, it, it could have been either one. The word they're used is just f- from your flock. Um, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood. Now here's the process. They shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. Meaning here's here's how you're going to eat it at the table. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You look like you're ready to go any second. You're ready to go on a trip. And you shall eat it in haste, he says. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast, and on all of the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast. This is the the feast that we're talking about. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove all the unleavened out of your house. They couldn't even have it in their, whatever you'd keep it in jars or whatever. Um, On the first day, you shall remove all unleavened from your house for anyone who eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person will be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day, another holy assembly. No work shall be done on those two days on the kind of the bookends. But but what everyone needs to eat, that alone you may prepare for yourself. Uh, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this day... I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout the generations, a statute forever. In the first month, 14th day of the month of that evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day, seven days. He kind of goes on and on here. Um, Now, this is kind of, tuck this away because we're going to come back to it. It says, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs or goats, whatever, for yourselves, according to your clans, <clears throat> kill the Passover lamb. Look, tuck this away. <laughs> Take a bunch or a branch of hyssop. <clears throat> so, okay, so it's a hyssop 
tree or branch, and you're gonna dip the hyssop into the blood at the basin that you've caught from sacrificing the uh, animal from your flock, and you're gonna put it on the doorposts. Um, none of you should go out of the house after that, for I will pass through, strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel. The doorpost, the Lord will pass over, will not allow the destroyer to enter your home. Okay, <clears throat> so, um, and then in, uh, let's see here, let me jump down 40. Okay, 43, verse 43. Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. <clears throat> and he gives some expectations. Uh, you shall not break any of its bones, um, these sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> and then one other thing connected to it. We don't tend to think of this one, but this was also connected to it. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, who, who was saved in the Passover? It was the firstborn males, right? Animal and, you know, human and beast. Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, it's mine. Now, what that means is it's to be sacrificed, meaning I, I, I own it. <clears throat> you don't, I saved, I saved them for you, therefore they belong to me. Now, they, they didn't do human sacrifices, there's a clause here, he says right underneath there. He says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all of the first opens, all of, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be to the Lord's. And then he says, this is kind of an interesting, weird clause. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb meaning you don't have to kill your animals that are like really uh, like a pack animal or one that you're using, you know, we would think of a cow or an ox and whatever he says, but you're gonna redeem it by making a sacrifice. And then for every person, he says, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Um, and then he says, when your sons ask you one day, hey dad, why is it that every time there's a firstborn male that's born, we go kill an animal? <laughs> You know, that's kind of strange. And he says, when, when that happens, you shall say this to him, by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So, Every single, so there's a, think about uh, this way, there's, a, there, there's an annual feast every single year in this kind of springtime, you, it, it's Passover, but you're also an agrarian person, you've got animals, and every single time there's a firstborn male, you have to sacrifice for it, or it dies, or you have to kill it. And both of these things, all throughout their year they engage with this, and then this massive day, they're constantly being reminded of this one reality that God did something to save them when they would have otherwise died. They had no hope. They would have otherwise been just ground down in slavery in there, but God stepped in. God acted, and there's all of these pictures with it. There's blood somehow protects those 
in the house. And so it doesn't happen there. And then we have this meal in which we do these different things. And we'll talk a little bit more about what some of those symbols are and that sort of thing. And as we learned uh, earlier, saw earlier, these feasts, um, they evolve over time. For instance, in, in Exodus here, he says, eat it in your house. Don't go out of your house. You get to Deuteronomy, and there's temple, and he's like, don't eat it in your house. <laughs> so sometimes things are completely reversed or turned around, so it evolves over time. In fact, when we get to uh, Jesus and his disciples here in a couple minutes celebrating their Passover, even pay attention to how their bodies are, because it's very, very different. So they're sort of doing, they're adapting this to, to communicate things of importance. So this festival, when we get to the New Testament, we're going to kind of jump forward. This festival really takes center stage in the Gospels, right? If you've read the Gospels, you know it, it comes up numerous times, but not just, it, it's not just in the background. The culmination of Jesus' ministry leads to this day. And Jesus somehow thought that this day would explain what it was that he was doing maybe more than any other day. Everything Jesus does is intentional. <laughs> you remember the, the uh, moments as, as Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem and he's going to uh, have the Passover and he's talked about the Son of Man is, is, is going to be, he's going to be turned over, he's going to be killed. But he keeps showing and doing things that he's in utter control. Like at one point he says, um, I want you to go over to the next town and you're going to see a donkey there. And go ahead and untie it and take it. And if the owner asks you why, tell him the Lord's... And then there's going to be jars and they go and ex this stuff exactly happens. What Jesus is showing is that I'm not a victim. I'm in utter control of every single thing happening. But somehow this day, in this day lies something unique about what God's <clears throat> plans are for him. <clears throat> so let's talk about a couple different things. One, um, let me just say a quick word about this. Uh, if you've ever read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're called the synoptic because they're kind of all coming from the same perspective. John is a little different. And uh, one thing that, that people will oftentimes struggle with and wrestle over and try to figure out is John seems to say that Jesus uh, celebrated the Passover on a different day than the synoptics do, just like one day apart, but they seem to be saying different things. And so scholars have you know, debated and looked into and studied traffic, like why is that, why could that, you know, could that be? And um, we don't know for sure, we don't have hard evidence, but one thing we do know is that there were different monthly calendars for the Jews, meaning um, the way you determine it's a new month if you have a lunar calendar, is what are you looking for? Yeah, the first sliver of the moon. And then you know to start your month, right? Well, <clears throat> the Pharisees, kind of more the common people, they, they did it themselves. And the Sadducees, the people who controlled the temple, that sort of thing, they did it themselves. And in the Mishnah, there's all sorts of these recordings of how they determined, you had to have two witnesses who said, I saw the first you know, crescent of the moon last night, so okay, we know that we're starting a new day. Well, invariably, people would have different, you'd start your day on this, well, we didn't have two witnesses, so we're gonna wait, oh, tomorrow we found, okay, so tomorrow's the first day. Or geographically, 
Suppose you live um, where Jesus lives, a little village, um, and you see the, your local community sees the first crescent of the moon and you start it. Well, it's cloudy in Judea. They don't see it. The next day they see it, so they start their day. So you live in Galilee and you go, okay, it's 14 days and we're going to head down to Jerusalem. You head down to Jerusalem, you get there and you realize, wait a minute, they started their month a, a day late. So you do your Passover there, then the people do their Passover the next day. That thing was very common. So while scripture doesn't tell us that's what's going on, we have many plausible situations which, which could explain this difference in saying, why is John saying it was, you know, he ate it the night before the Passover? Why are the synoptics saying he ate it on the Passover? Well, it all depends on what you think the Passover is, right? <laughs> so just a quick, just for those of you <clears throat> kind of nerds who like that sort of stuff, if you're interested. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about the, um, where they were and, and, and kind of the seeding of it and what they're... I grabbed a little uh, picture here. <clears throat> so at the Last Supper, um, they would have begun it in a state of purity, which means they would have gone into these little mikvah, uh, ritual bathing baths and washed themselves. That's why when, you know, when Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet, and he's, you know, Peter first goes, oh, you're not going to wash my feet. And then he goes, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And he goes, well, then my body too. And Jesus says, those who have bathed don't need to have anything clean except their feet. Meaning everyone there at the table, they had gone through the ritual bath, bathed. So they're in ritual state of purity. <clears throat> They've immersed. And, um, and then they come and they consume the bitter herbs and the <clears throat> lamb and the wine. And, and it's, <clears throat> it's interesting. It says, and this is something that when I talk about things changing over time. It says they were reclining. I'm sure you've heard that before. <clears throat> Basically, what they're doing is, um, this, this is called a triclinium. It's like three little, almost um, elevated couches. And uh, they would lean on their left arm and eat with their right hand. <clears throat> Why are they doing this? This isn't any part of what you saw in the Old Testament. Well, how do the Roman overlords eat? They eat like this, right? This is, this is how free men eat. So what are they doing when they celebrate the Passover, even though they have Roman overlords? They're communicating, we're not going to eat like slaves. We're going to eat like free men. And this is how our bosses eat. So we're going to eat in that same posture. They're communicating something both to themselves, hey, we are not slaves, even though we're living kind of still in the Exodus, God has saved us. Because the whole meal is about God has given us freedom in everything that they're doing. And even, even poor Jews who didn't have these kind of couches, they would take like boxes and put blankets on them just to kind of still have some sort of a uh, experience of saying, we're going to eat like free people because that is what God has made us. And then what they do is um, around the meal, there, there are four cups of wine. <clears throat> and I just want to walk you through, I'm going to give you the skeleton for the meal. And when you have that, when you go back and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you can kind of fit, fit it into the skeleton, if that, makes, <clears throat> if that makes sense. So let me just kind of walk through the four cups and what happened with each one of these cups. Because the cup is sort of a, a turning point <clears throat> in the meal each time. 
So the first cup, the, the leader of the meal would, would bless it. Um, and then everyone dips, they, they take a piece of bread and they dip it into some salt water. They dip it into salt water because the salt water represents their tears that they had. The, you think of the old story, you know, they cried their tears because they were in slavery. So they're eating this salty water, reminding themselves of the tears of slavery. Um, and, then they, and then there's this kind of nutty paste. They take their bread again, and they dip it into this uh, a Charles Set paste, which represents the mortar that they had to use for the bricks when they're building all of these places for the Egyptians. Remember at one point, one way that Pharaoh punishes them is he says, okay, I'm, I'm not going to provide mortar anymore. You're going to have to find your own, right? So <clears throat> they're dipping their bread into, with the first cup, the salt, salt water, and then this cheroset paste, which represents, again, the mortar for the bricks. And then they eat the bitter herbs, which repre represents the bitterness of their time there. Okay, so that's cup one. <clears throat> then cup two, a couple things happen in that. <clears throat> the, the youngest boy at the feast asks questions. And, you know, he asks questions like this. Um, why tonight do we eat unleavened bread instead of leavened bread? Why do we dip it in salt water and cheroset paste? Why do we eat bitter herbs tonight instead of vegetables? Why do we eat only roast meat tonight instead of stewed meat? Of course, that last question is redundant today. They don't eat any lamb at all because you can't sacrifice it at the temple. There's no temple. Um, and so they might ask something like, you know, why do we recline instead of <clears throat> sitting? And then the leader of the feast answers them by retelling the story, basically saying, I want you to remember. I want you to really do two things. I want you to remember what happened as he goes through the whole Exodus story and then proclaim God's goodness, proclaim God's activity, maybe is a better way to proclaim that God has acted on our behalf. Okay. So those are the two things that they do here. And this is important when we get to the Lord's Supper. They're remembering and they're proclaiming what God has done. Two things. Um, <clears throat> third cup. This is, so they drink the third cup, the meal ends, um, and then they sing the Hallel Psalms. Hallel Psalms are from 113 to 118. Psalm 113 to 118, those are the Hallel songs. And they would sing all of those because the Psalms are songs. That's, <clears throat> that's their worship book. And um, if, you, if you look at that, that's sort of a skeleton event into which when you read the Last Supper, you can see when these things are happening. So for instance, during the dipping of bread, that's when Peter wants to know who's going to deny him. And so he, he, he kind of nudges John. He's like, hey, ask him, you know, find out like who he's talking about. He says, well, it's someone who's going to put dip their uh, bread into this bowl <clears throat> with me. So we know that, uh, you know, he's there at that, at that point. Now, for instance, um, Judas, who's going to betray him, he can leave after the second cup because that's when the meat starts. And if you don't eat meat, you haven't participated in the Passover. So, you know, he, he gets up after cup two at any point. And then that's when Jesus institutes this, <clears throat> he, he takes the meal this symbolic meal, and he imbues it with, with, with new meaning. He's sort of repurposing what's going on there. At the third cup, this is where it takes a twist. The bread should all be gone by now. So his disciples would be a bit confused. Jesus finds new bread. 
And they're kind of, I mean, they'd be like, where, where, where'd you get the bread from? Um, they'd be a little puzzled by that. And he, he takes it, um, and see, the last thing on your lips is supposed to be lamb, because that's what you're supposed to remember. But he's, he's, giving, he's giving bread out, and he breaks it, and he says, uh, just like he talked about the tears and the set paste, he says, this bread is my body broken. <clears throat> and he breaks it for him. Now, um, when he gets to the next part, I don't know what the disciples were thinking, but they were probably feeling relaxed when he got the third cup because, okay, he's going back to normal. He's not deviating from this, going back to the third cup. And he takes it and he, he, drinks, he drinks it and he gives it to them. And he says, this is my blood. Now, they would have no doubt been shocked and horrified by that. Blood is, is it, it's, um, it's against the, the Levitic law to, to consume blood. That's how we say, make sure even when you slaughter an animal, get all the blood out of it because the, the blood is, it's, it's the life force of the being. It's this sort of sacred element. And so when he says that, and in fact, it's interesting, Mark says, this is probably why, Mark says he had him drink it first and then he said it. <laughs> Otherwise they probably would have been choking or like, I'm not gonna drink that, no way. So Mark says, then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. Then he says, that's my blood, by the way. <laughs> that's my blood of a covenant, he says, which is poured out for many. Now, let me, let me pause here and have a brief theological question conversation with you. Um, I would make the strong argument that you can't textually, meaning just by taking the text, you know, if you have a creed or a background or you're part of denomination, okay, you might, however you might view the elements. From the text, here's the question. Does the cup, the juice, the wine, whatever, and the food, does it literally transform into the body and blood of Christ? And of course, depending on your background, depending on your denominational background, <clears throat> here's the question. The whole meal is what? Water with uh, salt and you got the paste and you got bitter. The whole meal is symbolic. The whole experience is symbolism. You're participating in something and engaging with symbols that make you think of things. Why? Because you're to remember and proclaim what happened, right? So when Jesus says, this bread is my body, this this drink is my blood, how would they have heard it? They've just had a several hour long symbolic meal with everything there is symbolic. They would hear it as symbolic. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me get to the fourth cup here. There's a fourth cup. Now it wasn't compulsory in the first century. Um, today, I think it is. They're real careful though to stop on the fourth because you go beyond four and it's a raging party. Um, and so they stop at the fourth. And there, were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of debate as to like, should you make the fourth one? Can you do more than that? And um, Jesus seems to actually even refer to the idea of no more. Because um, on the fourth cup, he says, um, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. Now, for those of you who have kind of thought about or studied eschatology, that sounds a lot like the banquet feast of the Lamb. 
is what he's pointing to, what he's referring to. And the last thing they would do, as we mentioned earlier, they would sing a hymn, 113 to 118. They would sing these hymns, and we're told immediately after singing the hymn, Jesus goes out to the garden where he's going to be betrayed. What's so interesting is listen to some of the words that are in the last psalm that they would have sung here. So this is what Jesus has just sung. This is thick in his mind right now. I shall not die, but I shall live. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Jesus sings this fully knowing, Jesus fully knows what's gonna happen. There's no question in his mind. And yet he sets his face to the cross and he moves toward that. One more quick hint that John, the author, wants the reader, a careful reader, to see, because he wants you to immediately think of something. Uh, here we go. So this is, this is the description of Jesus' death. This is how John records it. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a, what? Where, where do we come across that? Do you remember? The hyssop is what they would use constantly, every single, to take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, and wipe it on the doorposts and the lintel of their house. And John, see the careful reader immediately, he thinks of this. It's, it's the king cake, it's the whatever, they just know it. And what John wants them to immediately think about is, that's what we do at Passover. That's, we cover the door in blood, and that, that's what protected us, that's what we're reenacting. And what's handed to Jesus is that. <laughs> As his blood is being shed at that very moment. In describing this sticker branch as hyssop, John's underscoring. He, he is highly, he, he's drawing a parallel with the Passover ritual and the role that that hyssop branch played in it. And what he's pointing out is what the Apostle Paul makes very, very clear. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He's, he's again, you know, thinking about the Jewish person and remember you have no leaven in your house. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may... Uh, be a new lump as you, uh, as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. I wonder if somehow John the Baptist has somehow had this idea in his mind or might know when Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptized by him. And you remember John's first thing he says when he sees him coming? He says, behold, it's the lamb of God that comes to take away our sins. Jesus is the Passover sacrifice. And so when we, when we celebrate communion like that we're going to do now, 
were doing the exact same thing that the, these people have done forever. Remember, what were they to do in this meal? Remember and proclaim. That's what they've been doing. Remembering what God has done and proclaim that he has acted on our behalf. And so that's what we do. In fact, those are Paul's exact words when he says, um, I think I have it here. For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you <clears throat> that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, what's the word? In remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? Same thing you've always been doing when you celebrate Passover. You're proclaiming that God has acted on your behalf in this significant way. And so we stand in the line with our fathers of the faith. As often as you do this, we're remembering and proclaiming. Proclaiming is the gospel. We're proclaiming the gospel as we do this. So during this next song, uh, take a couple minutes, go to one of the stations around the room, gluten-free in the back, grab, but hold on to the elements, and then we'll take them together at the end of the song, and we will remember and proclaim. Would you stand with me, if you're able? I love the words of that song. <laughs> it's a proclamation, right, that God is the way maker. He's that promise keeper. Wow. And so we do that now. I'll read Paul's words to us one last time. Jesus, on that night, after singing Psalm 118, he went out to the garden and he was, he was betrayed. But before that, he took bread and he gave thanks for it like a good host. And he broke it after that's the third cup said, this is my body, it's broken for you, take and eat. And the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. We're proclaiming the gospel, and that's our lives. That's what we're called to do. Amen. My prayer is that you go this week remembering what God has done for you, but that your life, your words, your behavior would be the proclamation of what Jesus has done in your life. Love you guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks for engaging. See you next Wednesday.